Okay, welcome everyone. It's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker this evening, Ulrika Hoyer. Ulrika's um, an associate professor in philosophy at the University of Leeds, having previously worked in the philosophy departments at the Univers University of Pennsylvania, Columbia University, and Barnard College. Her research focuses on theories of practical reasons, the relation of reasons and values, various problems in normative ethics, and the philosophy of action. She's currently working on a project on the moral significance of intentions funded by the British Academy. And the title of Ulrika's talk this evening is Intention and the Reasons for Which We Act. Thanks very much. Well, thank you very much for the nice introduction, Matt, and thanks for having me. Um, so, on intentions and the reasons for which we act. Uh, many of the things we do in the course of the day, we don't do intentionally. Blushing, sneezing, breathing, blinking, smiling, to name but a few. Um, but we also do act intentionally, and, and often when we do, we act for reasons. Whether we always act for reasons when we act intentionally is controversial, but at least the converse is generally accepted. When we act for reasons, we always act intentionally, necessarily so, it seems. Um, can you hear me, by the way? Yeah. Uh, yeah? Okay. Uh, what is it to act intentionally, and how does acting intentionally relate to uh, acting for reasons? So these are my guiding questions for the first part of this paper, the longer part of this paper. The second one is uh, comparatively short. In the second part, I will put the results to work and argue that they show that the dominant view of reasons to intend and the rationality of intentions is false. Um, I hope I can show that. So starting with the first part, Is acting intentionally acting for a reason? Um, according to some influential approaches to understanding intentional agency, the answer is yes. Davidson, for instance. Um, what sets intentional behavior apart from those other things we do, like blushing, sneezing, and so on, um, is uh, those things that we don't do intentionally is that it is acting for reasons. As Elizabeth Anscombe sees it, when a person acts intentionally, we can ask her why. The question has application, as she puts it, and she will typically, uh, and the agent will typically answer it by giving her reasons for so acting. The why question is ambiguous, though. It is perfectly applicable to non-intentional behavior. When someone f slips on a freshly polished floor, for instance, we can ask, why did you slip? Because the floor was wet and slippery might be the answer. But slipping isn't intentional. Thus, if Enscombe's why question has application only if a person acts intentionally, the question must be understood implicitly as aiming uh, at a particular answer. So Enscombe's why question, it seems, is a question that inquires about the person's reasons for acting as she does. When she acts intentionally, she will offer in reply what she believes to be a normative reason for her action. So if, for instance, the question, why did you slip, would be answered by 
what the agent takes to be a normative reason, it would indeed show that the action is intentional. An actor may answer, I slipped because it was part of the play's directions. If the actor slipped for that reason, she slipped intentionally. That an action is done for normative reasons seems a sufficient condition for it to be intentional. Uh, thus, Enscombe's view easily accommodates the generally accepted truth that actions done for reasons are necessarily intentional. But while acting for a reason is a core case of acting intentionally, there are forms of intentional agency that Anscombe's view cannot accommodate. They show that acting for a reason is not a necessary condition of acting intentionally. Anscombe was presumably not concerned with establishing necessary and sufficient conditions for acting intentionally, but the cases that escape her account are, I think, sufficiently important to call for an explanation of what makes them intentional. So I give you three cases uh, which I think um, contradict the view that acting intentionally is acting for reasons. The first is from Harry Frankfurt. Um, so just to put it in Frankfurt's uh, words, Harry Frankfurt invites us to, as he puts it, consider the difference between what goes on when a spider moves its legs when making its way along the ground and what goes on when its legs move in similar patterns and with similar effect because they are manipulated by a boy who has managed to tie strings to them. In the first case, the movements are attributable to the spider who makes them. In the second case, the same movements occur but uh, are not made by the spider to whom they merely happen. This contrast parallels the more familiar contrast between the sort of event that occurs when a person raises his arm and the sort that occurs when his arm goes up without, without his raising it. And perhaps we could add the contrast also parallels that of the actor who slips because it is required by her part and the person who slips because the floor is wet. But if so, how could the fact that the actor had a reason for slipping explain the difference? Surely the spider does not have a reason for moving. Another kind of case that um, contradicts the view are expressive action. Rosalind Hursthaus has given us um, such fabulous examples of expressive actions. I will just take it from her. So she imagines a number of actions done out of anger like quote, throwing an uncooperative tin opener on the ground or out of the window, kicking doors that refuse to shut and cars that refuse to start, tying towels that keep falling off a slippery towel rack onto it very tightly and then consolidating the knots with water, muttering vindictively, I'll show you. These actions express emotions, but they are not done in order to do so or for the reasons that they release the anger. They don't seem to be done for reasons, yet they are intentional. And the third case um, is of actions that we just do in order to pass time. My example here is doodling. Um, so uh, some people doodle while listening to a philosophy paper, and this is intentional behavior, but we do not normally doodle for a reason. Thus, the first step at an answer to our guiding question fails. The answer to the question, what is it to act intentionally, is not that it is acting for a reason. 
Is there a unifying feature which is shared by those intentional actions that ENSCOM focuses on, actions that are done for reasons, and the intentional actions in the three examples which are not? What explains that they all are instances of intentional agency? An answer that may seem obvious is that the unifying feature of intentional agency, uh, of intentional behavior, is that it involves intentions. According to the simple view, as Michael Bradman calls it, when a person fies intentionally, she intends to fi. But our counterexamples to the claim that intentional actions are done for reasons are also counterexamples to this view of intentional agency. Spiders do not have intentions. Expression of emotions are not done with the intention to express the emotion. Um, <coughs> and we don't doodle with the intention of doing so. Bradman himself rejects the simple view and offers an alternative. As he sees it, the simple view is a special case of the view that is actually correct, the single phenomenon view. Um, as he puts it, quote again, on this more general view, intentional action and the state of intention both involve a certain common state and it is the relation of an action to this state that makes an, that action intentional. The common state is intention. According to Bregman, a person intentionally, um, uh, according to Bregman, a person uh, intentionally fies only when she acts with some intention, but it needn't be the intention to fi. For example, when I intentionally set out to do 100 push-ups, which I know I cannot do, I needn't intend to do 100 push-ups, but I need to have some intention, for instance, the intention to try to do so. Um, so what I do would be intentional because it involves the intention to try. However, this answer, I think, is just as unsatisfying as the simple view. At least two of our three examples are counterexamples to the single phenomenon view as well. Some expressive actions may be amenable to Bradman's suggestion. While they don't involve intentions to express the emotions, they may the emotion, they may involve intentions to, for instance, throw the tin opener on the floor to tie the towel to the rail. Um, but there are also expressive actions which uh, Bradman's suggestion cannot accommodate, banging the table in frustration, say. I will from now on uh, dispense with a spider simply because I know too little about the ways in which spiders move. However, it is important to bear in mind that at least some animal actions are intentional. Uh, whether or not this is true of spiders, and if so, then their intentional agency, uh, the intentional agency of animals probably doesn't involve intention. And furthermore, there is no intention to doodle and probably also no intention to try to doodle. So the pastime activities that we perform don't seem to involve any intention. What then makes intentional behavior intentional? Not that it is done for a reason, not that it is done with an intention, not even that the agent must have some intention um, in doing what she does. So here's my third attempt to explain 
what it is to act intentionally. Another common, I think, less explored answer is that intentional actions must be under the agent's control. But there is an immediate objection. Some of the things we don't do intentionally um, are also under our control. We can control our breathing or smiling to some degree. We can suppress a smile or modify our breathing. Others are not. While both breathing and the movement of the digestive system are not intentional, only the former is to some degree under our control. So the ability to control draws the li line in the wrong place. But even if our ordinary smiling and breathing is not intentional, suppressing a smile or taking a deep breath may well be intentional. So perhaps that we can control behavior does not make it intentional, but when we actually do control it, it is intentional. However, I think there's also actual control which is not intentional. I control the various movements of my limb when, limbs when I walk or run or cycle, but I do not control them intentionally. I walk, run or cycle intentionally, but I do not contract my muscles intentionally. Yet it seems that I do control these movements as well. I modify them when the circumstances change, as when I cycle uphill or walk on rough or slippery ground. Um, perhaps highly skilled performances are even more striking in this regard. A violinist or a surgeon controls the very precise movement of her fingers, but they are intentional only at a general level. The violinist intentionally plays the second movement of Bach's Violin Concerto Number no. 2, say, but she also controls each and every movement that she makes in the course of the performance, but not, it seems, intentionally. Is control as a mark of intentional agency another blind alley then? I think it's too early to give up. Um, we may be able to distinguish between two kinds of control. Um, the violinist's control over the movement of her fingers on the one hand and the more explicit kind of control she has over performing the concerto in the first place on the other. The latter involves knowledge or beliefs of, belief of a certain kind. When beginning to play the concerto, the violinist believes that this is what she is doing. Uh, more precisely, she has a self-referential belief that she is playing the con concerto. The control of the movements of her fingers may also involve knowledge since it is the result of learning, experience, and training. A newborn baby, for instance, cannot control her limb movements at all. She has to learn how to do this. The knowledge the baby acquires in learning to control her movements is of a different kind from the propositional knowledge that the violinist has when she intentionally performs the concerto. It is non-propositional knowing how. Um, I don't mean to say that knowing how is always non-propositional. We can regard the skill to play the violin as knowing how, even if it in part involves propositional knowledge. But at least sometimes knowing how seems to be non-propositional. A baby learns how to grasp a toy, but she does not therefore have propositional knowledge about how to grasp it. She does not have self, the self-referential belief that she is now grasping a toy. I don't 
I know how to walk, but I don't have propositional knowledge about how to walk. I can control what it, uh, I will call control when it involves self-referential belief, belief control, meaning control which involves belief, not control by belief. I would like to suggest that we act intentionally if and in so far as we have belief control over our behavior. Um, so that's the suggestion I will work with, the kind of unified explanation of what intentional agency is. Um, it has often been claimed that intentional agency uh, involves a certain kind of non-inferential knowledge of what one is doing. Satya, inspired by Enskamp, argues that a mark of intentional agency is what he calls belief. That's uh, the claim up there. When someone is acting intentionally, there must be something he's doing intentionally, not merely trying to, in the belief that he's doing it. As Satya sees it, belief is a necessary truth about intentional agency, and any account of it must be able that any account of it must be able to explain. Belief is Satya's version of Enskamp's claim that intentional agency involves practical knowledge, um, based on the observation that Enskamp's why question is refused application. If an agent, when being asked why are you fying, answers, I was not aware that I was fine. Um, as Satya sees it, it is not the lack of awareness really, um, but the agent's lack of belief that she is fine, which explains why an agent does not fine intentionally when she rejects the why question in that manner by saying, I was not aware that I was doing this. If intentional agency involves belief control, this fact, if a fact it is, may help to corroborate Satya's claim. It may help to explain the claim belief up there because we act intentionally only when we have some degree of control over our behavior and because the relevant kind of control is belief control, belief, the capital belief uh, is true. This is only the beginning of an explanation, though. There remains a question why belief control is in some way significant. I will get back to this question in a moment. But first, consider our three examples again, which defied the earlier attempts of explaining intentional agency. How do they fare? Um, take doodling. When I doodle, I control what I'm doing. Do I have belief do control over it? That is, do I believe that I doodle or that I'm drawing a tree or a face while doodling? Normally, I think the answer is yes. And even the doodler of the non-representational persuasion would at least believe that she's drawing, even if she doesn't try to depict anything. Um, with expressive actions, it may be a little bit more complicated. When a person acts out of anger, she isn't always in control of what she's doing. It is certainly possible to lose control when in the grip of a strong emotion. However, when an agent loses control, her behavior also ceases to be intentional, I think. Hursthaus examples are all of agents who are in control of what they do, and they also believe that they are doing those things. Thus, while not all expressions of emotions are intentional, there is expressive action, and to, the, to it, the belief control criterion applies. 
Um, are animal actions performed in the belief that the animal is doing what he or she does? I see no general reason to doubt it. Um, but the question whether other animals and which other animals can have self-referential beliefs is an empirical one, so I will not pursue it any further. Thus, the belief control criterion applies to at least two of the three examples, and perhaps even to all three. The claim I try to make plausible is that at least a necessary condition uh, of intentional agency is that the agent has belief control. If the expression of an emotion is beyond the agent's control, as when she trembles or blushes, say, um, what she does is not intentional. When an agent controls the precise movement of her fingers, as the surgeon or the violinist do, um, but doesn't have any belief regarding these movements, the control is not intentional. But we are still short of an explanation why belief control matters here. I will now venture such an explanation. Um, it applies only to human agency. Um, human intentional behavior is at least in principle, I think, subject to reasons. Um, while two of the three examples, doodling and expressive actions, uh, the agents while in two of these examples, the agents don't act for reasons, they could nonetheless respond to reason against acting in this way and control their behavior accordingly. When they find that the doodling gets on other people's nerves and when the angry action is, or when the angry action is witnessed by a small child who's frightened by it, they can stop. Reason responsiveness requires belief control. In order to respond to a reason, um, that the person believes to have, she must know what she's doing, or at least have belief about it. If I believe that there is a reason not to undermine my neighbor's ability to concentrate during a philosophy talk, and therefore a reason not to doodle, but I don't believe that I'm doodling, I wouldn't respond to that reason. Why should I? The control we have over our muscle movements, say, is responsive to perceptions of changing circumstances, but unless we gain some intentional control, some beliefs about how the muscle contracts, it wouldn't be possible to change it in response to reasons. Yogis and athletes may have some control of this kind, but we do not ordinarily have it. The interest in the subset of those things where we have belief control is, uh, and that is human intentional agency, if I'm right, is that it introduces the possibility of guiding one's behavior in the light of reasons. Now, my examples were all at the margins of intentional agency. How about the core case, um, the one that philosophers normally talk about, namely acting with an intention? Um, how does acting with an intention, I'm forgetting my slides here actually, um, how does acting uh, with an intention re relate to acting for reasons? Uh, this kind of intentional behavior, the most full-blown kind, is a subset of the behavior over which we have belief control 
Um, while agents, when they act intentionally but not with an intention, respond to reasons only in a very rudimentary way, that is, for, for instance, to reasons to stop, acting with an intention is being guided by reason. So, so I will argue the claim I'm going to defend <coughs> is this one up there, I call it reason. If a person P acts with an intention to phi, there is, as P believes, a reason to phi. I will begin by distinguishing, distinguishing two senses of acting with an intention, and then ask for each of them how it relates to the reasons for which the person acts. The most common use of the expression acting with an intention is in sentences um, like, um, Susan writes to David with the intention of inviting him to her party. Here with the intention can be replaced by an order to. There is something that Susan wants to bring about by writing to David, and this is what she intends in writing to him. Let's call this further intention. There is a less common way of using the expression acting with an intention in sentences like Susan writes to David with the intention of writing to him. Here, acting with an intention contrasts with doing something unintentionally, accidentally, or by mistake. Call this basic intention. Um, how do they relate to reasons? First, further intentions. Um, if we know which further intention an agent pursues in her action, we also know something about her reasons at least about the reasons she believes to have for acting in this way. If we were to ask Susan, why do you write to David? She would answer to invite him to my party, thereby giving us her reason for writing to him. So if there's a further intention with which someone acts, there also is, as she believes, a reason for her acting as she does. But how about basic intentions? Must an agent, when she acts with a basic intention, believe that there is a reason for so doing? This is not as obvious as with further intention, uh, where the expression of the intention brings out what the agent's reason for acting is. However, one feature of acting with a basic intention is that there is something that the agent regards as success or failure of her action. If Susan, intending to write to David, accidentally sends her message to Peter, she would have failed to do what she intended to do. That Susan regards this as failure indicates that she sees a reason for, uh, for writing to David and not to Peter. However, the description of the basic reason does not reveal what this reason is. Often the reason for the action that is done with the basic intention is that it facilitates achieving an end. Um, thus, there's also a further intention. The reason why Susan intends, in the sense of basic intention, to write to uh, David rather than to Peter is that she intends further intention now to invite David but not Peter to her party. In those cases, since the agent believes she has reason to achieve the goal, she will also believe that she has a reason to take the facilitative step. And whether or not she's right about believing this would depend on whether she's right about having a reason to invite him in the first place. But let's consider an action done with a basic intention um, when there is no further intention. Imagine I'm whistling the ode to 
joy or I'm trying to whistle the ode to joy? Do I have to believe that I have a reason for whistling the tune? Um, I think we should distinguish two cases here. The one would be where I'm trying to whistle the ode to joy and may not succeed, but nothing turns on, on succeeding either, so I just seamlessly move on to six little ducks or I give up on whistling for the day and forget about it straight away. So here's no, there's no sense of success or failure here. I'm only passing the time. So here my whistling is a bit like doodling. But there is another way of doing something with a basic intention when there is no further intention. Perhaps I enjoy whistling the tune, but only if and so far I get it right. That I enjoy it gives me a reason to continue. Um, so, and it explains why it matters to me whether I get it right. My enjoying the activity depends on it. The difference between those two kinds of whistlings um, may not be sharply carved out, but I think we should distinguish them nonetheless. Um, when there is a possibility of failure, the agent acts for what she believes is a reason for doing what she does. When there is nothing that would count as failure, the agent is not acting for a reason. Failure and success bring in a normative dimension and therefore indicate that the agent has a reason or at least believes to have a reason for what she does. Um, I think there is a real distinction here, but it probably doesn't map perfectly on our ordinary use of the expression acting with an intention granted anyway, that we rarely use this expression except to refer to further intentions. I will from now on use basic intention as referring only to those cases where the agent does regard not succeeding in acting uh, on the intention as a failure, either because she sees some value in acting in this way, the value of enjoyment, or because she believes that acting in this way facilitates realizing a further intention. In those cases, she acts for what she believes is a reason. By contrast, when it doesn't matter whether the agent succeeds or fails, uh, she is not acting for a reason, but the behavior is nonetheless intentional in the same way in which doodling it. It does, is, it does involve belief control, but not reasons to act. Thus, acting with a basic intention is different from merely having belief control because it introduces a normative dimension that belief control lacks. Um, if we understand acting with a basic intention in this sense, then uh, I think my claim reason, the claim I started with, uh, the claim that when a person acts with an intention, she acts for what she believes is a reason, that claim comes out true. There is a bit of terminological tweaking here, but I hope it seems justifiable. Um, so according to reason, the reason in capitals, uh, when a person acts with an intention, she acts for what she believes is the reason. How about the reverse? Um, does an agent act with an intention when she acts for a reason? Might it be possible to act for reasons but not with an intention to do so? Answering this question will shed some further light on the role of forming intentions, I think. 
there are always many reasons for and against acting in a certain way. Uh, at least some of those an agent may be aware of. We are often aware of a multitude of reasons for various options, especially when we deliberate about what to do. In deliberation, we attempt to figure out which of those reasons to act on. By forming an intention, the agent resolves which reason she is going to act on. So it, it is the end of deliberation, forming an intention, future-directed intention here. Um, that she has resolved the question uh, does not entail that she will act in this way or that she must believe that she will act in this way. After all, she can revise her intention later or for forget about it when the time comes to act on it or she can fail to keep time without forgetting. But at least for now she has settled which of her reasons to act for. But if the agent doesn't change her mind, doesn't forget about the intention and keeps time, she will at least try to do what she intends to do. I will call this claim resolve, again in capital letters. Some philosophers claim that an agent who has an intention must believe that she will act uh, as she intends to do. But since we we know that changing our mind, forgetting and failing to keep time, uh, life options for each of us, it would be for the most part irrational to have such a belief. Rationally, an agent can have only the conditional belief, resolve, I think. Um, when the person does act on her intention, so when the future directed intention becomes an intention in action, the intention will guide her through the whole process of acting. It doesn't just trigger the action, but it guides it in all its stages, including modifications in the light of changing circumstances or even giving up when realizing the intention becomes too costly. Um, acting with an intention is, I think, the psychological side of being guided by a reason. So the second feature of acting with an intention is guidance. Mm, thus forming an intention has two main effects. It resolves what to do and it guides the agent through the course of action. When we act for reasons as a result of deliberation, we cannot act without resolve and guidance. Reasons don't resolve among themselves what a person will do. While they and while they can guide her, they must do so with the help of psychological states whose function is to monitor the action's progress. If this is what forming an intention achieves, then it follows that we cannot deliberatively act for a reason without having an intention. Perhaps it is possible that we can act for a reason without deliberation sometimes, without forming an intention to do so. Um, I think Jennifer Hornsby uh, pointed out that there are cases that she calls emergency cases which may have this structure. Um, but even in those cases we act intentionally, I think in my sense that we have belief control over the action. Furthermore, we can of course act in accordance with reasons without intending to do so. And while intending some or while intending something quite different. But acting for a reason requires the belief control that comes with acting intentionally and for the most part also resolve and guidance, and that is forming an intention.
Um, so here's m my s summary of the first part. Um, I've shown that acting intentionally is a unified phenomenon and that it is crucial to our ability as agents to act for reasons. Yet this is not because acting intentionally is acting for a reason. A second explanation of the unified phenomena also turns out to be false. Um, that an action is intentional if and because the agent acts with an intention. But there is a unified core. Intentional agency involves a special kind of control, the control that an agent has when she acts in the belief that she is doing what she does. Belief control of this kind opens up the possibility of responding to reasons. Furthermore, when an action is not just intentional in this broad sense, but done with an intention, it is done for a reason. Thus, while the view that acting intentionally is acting for a reason is false, it is true that acting with an intention is acting for a reason. So we haven't moved that far from the first suggestion, actually, except that I think acting intentionally is broader. Uh, than just acting with an intention. <coughs> um, so let me move to the second part now. Um, in the first part, I explored how acting intentionally re relates to acting for reasons and to acting with an intention. The reasons in question are reasons to act. We found that, a person that when a person intends to do something, it is because she believes to have a reason to do it. That is the reason claim up there again. Thus, as she sees it, there is something to be said for the action she intends to perform. That is, if a person, P, intends to fire, there is, as P believes, a reason to fire. We form intentions on the basis of reasons to act that we believe to have. The currently, I think, prevalent view of the relation of reasons to act and intentions may seem at first blush congenial to this claim and perhaps even uh, provide an explanation for it. But I will now show that this is not so and that the prevalent view is actually false. Um, what I call the prevalent view is what uh, Conor McHugh, I think, has called the symmetry view. Um, the symmetry view is this. Uh, a reason to fire is ipso facto, a reason to intend to fire. It's called the symmetry view because it claims that reasons to intend are very similar to reasons to believe. So let me explain. Do we act for a reason when we act with an intention? Because the very same reason, the reason to act, is also a reason to form the intention. Do we intentionally form and revise intentions in response to our reasons to act? According to a dominant strand in the current discussion, the answer is yes. A reason to fire is ipso facto a reason to intend to fire. And therefore, when a person believes to have a reason to fire, she would rationally form an intention to fire. The proponents of this view argue that reasons to intend should be understood in parallel to reasons to believe. 
special cases apart, we form beliefs in, in response to evidence for the truth of a proposition. We discard beliefs when there is evidence for their falsity. In parallel, so the view, intentions are formed in response to reasons to act. Reasons to act govern the formation of intentions and determine their rationality in much the same way in which evidence governs the formation of beliefs. Thus, the symmetry view. It aspires to giving a unified account of theoretical theoretical and practical normativity based on the commonalities between theoretical and practical reason. So it's quite an ambitious view. The symmetry view rests crucially on one observation. We cannot form beliefs exclusively for a certain kinds of reasons, namely reasons for having a belief because it would be good to have one. I cannot form the belief that Cameron is a good prime minister just because it would help me to get a job if I had this belief. Imagine I had a job interview and if I had this belief I would perform a lot more convincingly and I know that. But I cannot form the belief directly for that reason. And there's of course also the whole variety of demon induced reasons which show similar point. In general, I cannot form the belief that P just because as I see it, it would be good if I had the belief that P in the absence of any evidence that P is true. Similarly, I cannot form an intention exclusively for reasons that bear only on the value of having an, the intention. Reasons to form the intention to find in the absence of any reason to fi. It may be good to have an intention, even when there is nothing to be said for acting as intended. We find examples of such reasons in the neighborhood of the toxin puzzle. As you probably remember, the toxin puzzle goes like this. An eccentric billionaire offers you a million pound if you now intend to drink a mild toxin tomorrow. It won't kill you, it will just give you a stomach ache if you drink the toxin. If you form that intention, then the millionaire will, by midnight today, um, transfer a million pounds into your account. Um, so come tomorrow, there will be absolutely no reason for, to, for you to drink the toxin. Can you form that intention? Uh, so the answer is no, no, since there is no reason to act as intended, but only a reason to form the intention, at least if you go with this approach. The proponents of the symmetry view need to explain why it is that we cannot form beliefs and intentions directly for reasons that bear only on the value of the attitude. They aspire to providing an explanation which also establishes their main claim, that reasons to provide a uh, that reasons to act are reasons to intend and possibly even the only reasons to intend. According to one of the common explanations called normativism, the attitudes are subject to constitutive standards of correctness. In the case of belief, the standard is truth. In the case of intentions, the standard has been dubbed to be doneness. An attitude would not be a belief, so the idea if it didn't respond to evidence, and an attitude would not be an intention if it didn't respond to considerations that bear on the to-be-doneness of actions. Since the, the, the reasons that 
are provided by the value of the attitude itself are by definition independent of truth or to be doneness, the attitudes do not respond to them. We cannot form the respective attitudes for those reasons. An alternative explanation is a teleological one. Belief aims at truth or knowledge and intentions aim at actions which are to be done. Both normativism and teleology promise to explain why we um, why we can form uh, in sorry uh, wh why we cannot form intentions in response to reasons of the toxin puzzle variety. I don't think that either, either view delivers what it promises, but I will not pursue this question here. There was a discussion in the paper. I will skip that to actually not be too long. Um, but I'm happy to talk about it if, if you like to. Um, instead, I will show that the main claim of the symmetry view is simply false, so that the reasons needn't interest us all that much, at least it's false with regard to uh, reasons to intend. I don't make any um, claim about reasons to believe here. As we have seen in the first part, future-directed intentions um, have one characteristic benefit. The intention resolves which of the many reasons we have um, which of the many reasons we normally have we, we, we are going to act for. So the benefit of future-directed intention is resolve. It thereby settles what the agent will do unless she changes her mind, forgets, or fails to keep time. And assuming the agent does act on the intention, it guides her through the course of action. One reason for forming an intention, then, is that doing so facilitates, or can at least facilitate, acting in accordance with one's reasons. There is a kind of instrumental reason here, since the psychological benefits of forming the intention explains why there is such a reason. It can be useful to form an intention. Um, as with instrumental reason generally, there is a reason only when there is at least a sufficient reason to act as one intends to, so a sufficient reason to reach the end, as it were. Um, the facilitative reason to form an intention applies in many cases when one has sufficient or conclusive reason to do something and, it, and is provided by the facilitating <coughs> effects of intentions. Intentions settle what a person will do and they guide the agent throughout the course of acting. Therefore, when she has a sufficient reason for doing something, and doing it will be more secure if she forms an intention, then she has reason to form this intention. But the facilitative reason does not derive from the reasons to act in the way the symmetry view claims reasons to intend derive from reasons to act. This will become clearer if we focus on an example. Um, I take writing a novel as my example. Because it is hard to imagine that anyone could write a novel without intending to do so. If an aspiring author has a sufficient reason to write or to try to write a novel, she also has a facilitative reason to intend to do so. The facilitative reason is a reason to form a basic intention, an intention 
to write a novel. The reasons for writing a novel are different, though. There is no reason to write a novel because it is writing a novel. The reasons for writing might be that the author is a gifted storyteller, that she has seized on an important topic, that she needs to earn a living, that it would develop her talents, possibly many others. Presumably the author would have some further intention in writing her novel, but she needn't have anyone in particular. She would comply with her reasons to develop her talent, for instance, even if she were writing only with the intention to earn a living. It is not necessary that she should intend to develop her talent, even if this is a reason for her to write. If she were to form the intention to write the novel because it facilitates writing in order to learn a living, how could this reason derive from the reason she has to write because it would develop her talent? But according to the symmetry view, the reason to intend to phi derives from any sufficient reason to phi. Furthermore, the facilitative reason is of the wrong kind for the proponent of the symmetry view, being an instrumental reason um, that the author has because of the psychological benefits of intending, resolve and guidance, if I'm right, uh, it, is a kind, it is of a kind with the reasons that the symmetry view rejects. It is based on a value of intending which is independent of the value of acting as intended. Thus the perhaps most pervasive reason to intend is completely at odds with the symmetry view. In addition, um, the symmetry view is mistaken about reasons to intend in a different way, which my novel writing example already hinted at. There often isn't a reason to intend just because there is a sufficient reason to act in a certain way. The aspiring author needn't intend to develop her talent, uh, her writing talent, even when there is, it is true that she has a reason to do so. Complying with one's reason does not require that one should do so intentionally, at least not in general. This is a plain rejection of the symmetry view, but perhaps also the most obvious objection. The symmetry view is false because there are clear counterexamples. So here two of those. Many reasons to act are neither explicitly nor implicitly reasons to act intentionally. If you have a reason to close the door, complying with the reason would not normally require that you do so intentionally. If you kick the door shut accidentally, you have done all that the reason requires. You don't fail to respond to your reasons if you don't form an intention to close the door. And here's a second kind of counterexample. Reasons not to do something, reasons for omissions, are not reasons to intend not to do it. There is no reason not to intend not to kill or, to, or not to betray a friend. If it never crosses your mind whether or not to kill, you haven't failed to respond to your reasons. From these counterexamples, we can con conclude straight away, I think, that it is not true that we have a reason to intend to fight when we have a sufficient reason to fight. When there is a reason to, when is there a reason to intend to fight? Then, um, I think the positive examples follow on straight away. Um, I hope they do. So there are some actions which we cannot perform except intentionally. So for many of them, we can do them 
we needn't do them intentionally, so there is no reason to form an intention. Um, but sometimes we cannot comply with the reason except intentionally. Giving a gift or thanking or executing someone, sorry, of this kind. If I give you something which I do not intend as a gift, then it isn't. Thanking a person is thanking her intentionally, so uttering words in a language that the speaker doesn't understand would not amount to thanking someone, even if they mean in that language, thank you. Um, if there is reason to perform an action of this kind, it is ipso facto a reason to do so intentionally. There are also some actions that we shouldn't do unless we do them with a particular intention, perhaps. Um, supporting a vulnerable person may require that one doesn't act for personal gain. And there may be reasons to visit a sick friend only when the intention is to cheer her up, but not when it is done in order to win a bet. So, if these are the reasons uh, that we have to form intentions, then what we get are those, the facilitative reason to intend, sort of because of the psychological benefit of forming an intention, um, reasons to intend when there is a reason to do something that we cannot do but intentionally, and reasons to intend when there is a reason to do something that we shouldn't do except with a certain intention. Um, so. This is currently my list. I don't know whether it's comprehensive. Perhaps it leaves out something. I don't know. But it looks to me that those are reasons to intend. Perhaps those are all the reasons to intend. And the symmetry view doesn't account for any of them. Furthermore, it postulates reasons that we don't have. And it should therefore be rejected. So here's, here's my conclusion then. Um, on the prevalent view of the relation of intentions and reasons to act, we have reasons to intend whenever we have a sufficient reason to act. I've shown that this is false because there are clear counterexamples um, of reasons to act which do not provide reasons to intend, as well as of reasons to intend which do not derive from reasons to act. What's more, the symmetry view misunderstands the relation of practical reasons and intentions. It conceives of it as a normative relation. We should form an intention when we have a sufficient reason to act, in part according to the symmetry view. In part one, I've shown that we cannot act but uh, we cannot act for reasons but intentionally. Acting intentionally is our main way of conducting ourselves, and this is so because as rational agents we act much of the time for reasons. And the kind of control that comes with intentional agency allows us to respond to reasons. When we act for reasons, we act intentionally not because we have reason to act with an intention, but because we cannot act for reasons in any other way. The aspiring author cannot write a novel without intending to do so. Sometimes we form intentions for reasons. In particular, we form future-directed intentions for facilitative reasons, but the symmetry view does not account for those. 
The symmetry view also ignores that acting for a reason is only one way of complying with our reasons. Often there is nothing amiss as long as we act in accordance with our reasons. For instance, the example of reasons for omissions. In those cases, we can comply with our reason to act even when we have no particular intention to do so. The symmetry view stipulates reasons to <coughs> intend that we don't have, namely reasons to intend not to kill, or reasons to intend to fire when we have sufficient reason to fire, and it cannot explain the reason to intend that we do have, um, like the facilitative reason, so I think it's false. The paper has a short explanation of why it is on this view that uh, we cannot act for, that we cannot form intention for certain kinds of reason as in the toxin puzzle. I will skip this part, but again, I'm happy to talk about it. So that's it. Thank you.